I wonder whether you can think of a moment, whether you can think of a forgiveness that was a relief to receive, a, a time when you were forgiven of something that you had been carrying around. I remember, oh, it's got to be 15, 16 years ago, um, I had been dating uh, this girl named Rachel, and uh, we had been going out for long enough. We'd kind of passed that initial excitement phase, and um, we'd been dating long enough that you begin to get a feel for where direction the relationship is going. And I, I remember arriving at a place where I, I kind of felt like I, I think this thing is, is coming to a close. I don't think this is going to last much longer. And I, 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 there was one weekend in particular. I had gone away for the weekend and was doing a lot of reflecting on the relationship. It wasn't that old, but, you know, it had been long enough. And, um, and I, coming home from that weekend away, I decided, you know what, when I get back, uh, I'm going to go see Rachel and I'm just going to end, end the relationship. And I was kind of driving back in town. I was kind of dreading, not just seeing her, like I was just dreading the whole thing. So I, I got back into town. I picked up my messages and she had called and I thought, nah, I'm, I'm not going to call her back right now. I'm not going to go see her today. I'll go see her tomorrow, maybe. You know, it was a Saturday afternoon. The next morning I went to church and someone came uh, running up to me and they said, hey, and they said, how's Rachel doing? And I said, I don't know how Rachel's doing. How is Rachel doing? Why, like, why are you asking? And she's, and the person this woman said to me because she almost died I said what do you mean she almost died and she said well this weekend she was hiking in the Niagara Gorge and she lost her footing and she fell down this like 40 foot steep embankment just kind of tumbled the whole way down and, and basically she busted her leg and she busted her arm they said the firefighters had to hike down into the gorge and lower this this safety sled or whatever they call rescue sled down to where she was. And, and one of the firefighters had to climb down the embankment and strap her into the sled. And then they, they pulled her back up and sent her to the hospital. And she, she was all busted up on one side. And she's got a big cast on the one leg and a, a big cast on her shoulder. She basically can't do anything on her own. She's pretty well stuck in her apartment for the next five or six weeks uh, until she feels better. Um, if you haven't gone to see her, you should probably get over there. Oh. So that afternoon, I went over to visit her, and she looked horrible. Like she would just looked like she hadn't been able she hadn't been able to have a shower. She hadn't you know been able to clean up, and she was literally like in a cast all here and a cast all there, and she physically couldn't even move herself around the apartment. I was like, how are you doing? And so she told me this whole story all over again. It was like this, it was just such an awful thing to hear. And uh, it made it really hard to look her in the eye and basically say, yeah, I, that's a terrible story. And I think we're finished. <laughs> so totally a dirtbag thing to do, hey? I mean, I, because I, I kind of, like I said to her, I, I was an idiot, right? But I said to her, like, I can be around for the next five or six weeks and do boyfriendy things to help you get around and whatever, but I just, and she said, well, if, if you're not, don't want to be my boyfriend, I don't want you around here, so just fine, just go. And so I kind of left, and that was, that was the way our relationship ended. And it was 
really kind of gross. And so, so I thought about it, you know, like it kind of was one of those things that sticks with you. A number of years later, I called her up and I said, you know, I said, I just want to talk to you about this because I feel terrible about everything. I've kind of been living with this. And she said, you know what? She said, I got over it. She said, it was for the best. Honestly, she said, I know our relationship wasn't going very well anyhow, and it was going to end anyway. And so, you know what? I, honestly, she said, I, I wasn't ever really mad about it, and I'm certainly not mad now. Don't ever think about it again. And whether that was true or not, that she was never mad, I was happy to grab a hold of that forgiveness and cling to it and just say, this is just a remarkably wonderful woman who would forgive me for such a moment as that. And I just, I wonder whether you've had that kind of experience of forgiveness. And I wonder whether you've ever extended to somebody that kind of moment of forgiveness. We're coming to the end of this series, The Five Deadly Sins of Church. And at one level, I think we could have just called the series One Deadly Sin of Church because I think there's, the whole series is rooted in the one deadly sin of pride, of, of, it's even more graphic to call it unhumility. Jesus launches into this sermon by saying, listen, unless you change and become, will, you're willing to become small and insignificant like a child, you really don't understand what I'm all about. And this whole series has been about unpacking the ways in which unhumility manifests itself in ugly, ugly ways in our lives. Uh, and the unhumility of inhospitality of not being willing to open our arms and our hearts and our homes and our lives to embrace people who are small and insignificant, the weak and the vulnerable and the forgotten and the ignored and people that the rest of society kicks to the curb. The, we talked about the unhumility of inconsiderateness, of just not caring about the impact of our attitudes and our actions, not caring about the negative impact that our words and our deeds excuse me, sometimes have on other people and especially on their life of faith. We talked about the unhumility of indifference, of just certain individuals and communities of people that we just don't give a crap about. And Jesus, in this whole series, has been inviting us into becoming a different kind of community, the kind of community that's rooted in humility, that's rooted in this, that's this crazy community of love that is welcoming and opening and embracing to everyone, no matter who they are, no matter how small or insignificant in society's eyes. This community of incredible consideration and compassion that always thinks about the other person first. This community of incredible compassion and, and love that's willing to relentlessly pursue people who have drifted away, who are far from God and far from community and so on. And, and when we become this kind of community that Jesus is inviting us into, this community of love, you know what happens? Conflict. Because <laughs> when you bring these diverse individuals into community with you, people who are so different than you socioeconomically and racially and so different than you in belief and orientation and gender and education. When you bring into community people who have such different convictions about how faith is supposed to work and different commitment levels to this thing of, of you know, following Jesus that we're all in the business of exploring and pursuing. When you bring people who are so different than each other into community with each other, what ends up happening is conflict. And so last week, G Jeff walked us through Jesus' teaching on the humility of conflict resolution. 
on being people who are willing to relentlessly pursue the restoration of relationship whenever conflict enters into the equation. But that kind of raises this question, right? This natural question that emerges and that uh, Peter asked, Jesus' friend, the apostle Peter asked in, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, where it says this. This is where we're starting today. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Last week, Jesus was giving advice on what to do when somebody sins against you. You, you go privately, one-on-one, and quickly and quietly trying to restore the relationship where anybody knows that there's been a break. If that doesn't work, you bring one or two other people who are mutually respected by both of you to bring some objectivity and to, to mediate between you. And, and if that doesn't work, you bring church representation, kind of the authority of Christ in that way, into the, into the community. And the hope is that you're going you're gonna to earn this hard-fought reconciliation where, where the two of you who have been split because one of you was hurt by the other have been brought back together in relationship. But Peter's question is, but Jesus, what do I do when somebody does it again? What do I do when I've been hurt by somebody's intolerance or inhospitality, what do I do when I've been hurt, uh, when I've been scandalized by somebody's behavior or their attitudes or their actions or what they've said? What do I do when, um, when, I'm, when you know, people are talking about people behind each other's backs or when I'm sensing that people don't really care about each other and I try and lovingly confront and, and we gain this kind of reconciliation and then it happens again. And then it happens again. And then it happens again. How many times do I have to go through this process of reconciliation when the person that I'm dealing with just keeps hurting me over and over and over again? And surely you've been in a relationship like that. And Peter has a proposal. He says, how many times, Jesus? He said, would you say seven times? Now, in a first century context, Peter's actually being incredibly generous when he says seven times. The rabbis debated this question of how often you have to forgive somebody who keeps hurting you, who keeps sinning against you. And in reflecting on a passage in the Jewish scriptures, Amos chapter 2, verse 6, uh, this, they decided that the magic number was three. In Amos 2, verse 6, it says that this is what the Lord says. This is God's opinion on forgiveness. It says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. In other words, the way the rabbis read that passage was, if Israel sins four times, that's when the judgment comes. And so the rabbis would say, following the example of God, if somebody sins against you, you forgive them. If they sin against you again, you forgive them. If they sin against you a third time, you forgive them. But if they sin against you a fourth time, you're under no obligation to forgive. In fact, you can just pop them. Because at that point, they deserve whatever they get. And Peter comes to Jesus. He says, listen, he says, what is forgiveness Look like, because he says, here's, here's my deal. He said, I'm prepared to do better than the rabbis. He said, I will double their number and add one for good measure. I'd be willing to forgive up to seven times. In verse 22, it says, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And then some Bibles will translate that 70 times, seven times. 
Jesus says it's the magic number isn't seven. It's not three. It's not seven. The magic number is 77 or 490, depending on how you interpret the passage. In saying that, Jesus is actually referencing a, uh, an ancient Jewish story about a guy named Lamech who had been injured by somebody and who swore that he would get his revenge on that person. He says, anyone who hurts me, I will hurt them back 77 times. Or maybe he said, 70 times, seven times. That's where the debate is. One commentator says, when Lamech says that, I will get my revenge 77 times over. What Lamech is saying is, I'm committing myself to executing a blood feud with this person that knows no limit and knows no boundary. When Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 He's not saying, listen, Peter, you have the right idea. Yes, we have to figure out what the number is, but your number's just too low. Instead of seven, choose 77 or choose 490 so that the 78th time somebody sins against you or the 491st time somebody sins against you, you can just often you know, pop them in the nose. So what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is saying is, by quoting this ancient story about Lamech, what Jesus is saying is that though other people are committed to violence and vengeance that knows no limit and no boundary. Among people who follow me, we are committed to mercy and forgiveness that knows no limit and no boundary. What Jesus is saying is, Peter, if you're counting, you're not forgiving. There is no upper limit to the number of times that you ought to forgive the person who's, who hurts you, who sins against you. I know that's hard for people to hear. That's hard for us to process because at one level, I, I'm not sure we're always really clear on what Jesus means by forgiveness. I know some people are afraid of forgiveness because they think that if you extend forgiveness to somebody, what you're saying is that what you did is okay. You're letting them off the hook. And that's not true. That's not what forgiveness means. I, I have four little girls and I know that none of this ever happened in your homes growing up. And I know that for those of you who are parents, none of this happens in your house but because I'm a terrible parent and you're a good parent. Um, sometimes my daughters fight. Uh, I, have, I never had sisters growing up. I am amazed at how sisters have this incredible capacity to be best friends and mortal enemies at the same time, all the time. It's just this, un, they're like best friends, you know, tiggle fights, and then five seconds later, I hate you, you're not my sister, I never want to talk to you again. It's just unbelievable to me. Um, but when they fight, Krista and I are committed to teaching them how to resolve their conflicts in the way that Jesus talks that Jeff explained last week you know one of the sisters will come in and say was well, so and so hurt me and, and my answer is usually did I do that to you and I say no she did and I said then go talk to her don't talk to me I'm not involved um, and you guys go and resolve it yourself but I always say this but if you can't resolve it if you can't become friends again come back and get me and I'll join you in your conversation as you talk to each other I'll participate and I'll make sure that um, everything gets sorted out. We've never had to take it to the church level. 
Uh, though I suppose since I'm a pastor, I kind of bring that uh, anyway. But, um, but this is our thing. You got to go resolve it yourselves. And then once we get to that moment of, of reconciliation, right, where it's time for the apologies, of course the girls always have to say, I'm sorry for, and then very specifically name the thing that they did that hurt the other person. I'm sorry for saying that I hate you and I never want to talk to you again. And the other girl, we have trained the other girls, the other girl is never allowed to say, it's okay. Because it's not okay that you said that you hate me and it's not okay that you said you never want to play with me again. What we've taught them to say is not it's okay. We've taught them to say, I forgive you. Even though what you did is not okay, I choose to forgive you. Forgiveness is the willingness to say to the person who's hurt you, I will not hold this against you. I am willing, I am not going to seek revenge. I'm not going to try and get back at you. I'm, um, I am releasing you from what you did, even though it's not okay. And Jesus talks later on in the passage, in the last verse, he talks about forgiveness from the heart. This isn't just like, fine, I won't, you know, I won't take out revenge. No, this is, this is at a heart level I want to set you free. And I understand this is hard. Forgiveness is hard. And the bigger the hurt, the harder it is. And the longer the journey and the longer the process. But it's, a, it's something that comes from the heart. In fact, you know how you can tell when you've forgiven somebody? Because I have people say this to me periodically. Oh, I've totally forgiven them. I can't stand the sight of them when they walk in the room. But, I've, but you know, I forget. No, 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 hold on. The way you can tell whether you've forgiven somebody is if your heart has let it go. When you see them... You don't feel the injury anymore. You know you've forgiven them if when you see them, you, uh, you've let them go at a heart level. You don't feel anything about the hurt. That's forgiveness from the heart. Now, is that the same thing as trusting somebody? No, it's not. Right? If, you, um, if somebody takes financial advantage of you 77 times in a row, on the 78th time, I would say, maybe don't lend this person money. It's just not smart. You can forgive them for the way they've taken advantage of you, but that doesn't mean that you have to step into it again, right? Does that mean full reconciliation so that things have to go back the way they were? No, it doesn't. This passage has been abused by pastors and preachers in particular who have said to wives, I know he abuses you, you have to forgive him and, and stick it out. And I would say um, that I think Jesus would say, if somebody has been abusive towards you 77 times, you don't have to wait till 77, but if somebody is repeatedly abusive towards you, maybe the truth is they're not in a space where they can handle being in a relationship right now and you need to do what you need to do to create some safety and some space in order to give them the space they need to deal with whatever they need to deal with in order to become ready to re-engage in an appropriate version of the relationship. It doesn't mean, forgiveness doesn't mean, okay, let's just go back to the way things were. No, 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 no. You can, let, you can forgive them for what they did that was not okay, but that doesn't, that means they still have to earn your trust. They still have to earn the relationship again. But that being said, Jesus says, in the community of faith among people who want to follow him, this is a community that knows only mercy, compassion, and forgiveness that knows no boundary and no limit. How can that be? 
How can you become that kind of forgiving person? Jesus goes on to tell a story. He says, verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, the way it's going to be among you, is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to settle, as he began to settle, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Jesus says, imagine there's a king and he's settling financial affairs with all of the people who owe him money. He's kind of trying to close the books on old debt. And there's this guy, this servant that's brought into his presence. Now, given the amount of money that this servant owes the king, he's probably not the guy who cleans the toilets. He, he's probably a high-ranking government official, maybe someone who is in charge of the treasury, of managing the king's money. And he's mismanaged it so badly that he's now into the king, it says, for 10,000 bags of gold. In, in the Greek, it says 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents, you have to understand, is an enormous sum of money beyond what you can imagine. Actually, the, the word 10,000 is actually the Greek word. It does mean 10,000, but it also is just the highest number that Greeks had in their numbering system. It, where we get our English word myriads. He owned, owed myriads and myriads of talents. He, he owed limitless talents, right? This, it's the highest number in the Greek numbering system combined with the highest denomination of currency in the ancient Near East. The talent was the highest denomination of currency. So this is the highest number of the highest denomination of currency. You're, you're talking about um, an extraordinary amount of money. A, a first century historian named Josephus says that in the year 4 BC, the entire nation of Israel paid taxes to the Roman Caesar in the amount of 600 talents. The taxes for the entire nation was 6% of what this guy owed the king. 10,000 talents was enough money to pay 200,000 men's labor wages for an entire year. Just call this billions and billions of dollars. The guy, of course, couldn't pay. And so the king uh, did, in a world that didn't have bankruptcy laws and bankruptcy protections, couldn't file chapter 11, the king did the only thing the king could do. He ordered that the man be sold with all of his family and all of his stuff, and the money would go to recoup some of the debt. Now, the king wasn't going to come close to recouping this debt, right? A top-notch servant in the ancient world got you maybe one single talent, Okay. Unless this guy's family was 10,000 people and they were all top-notch servants, uh, they were not, he was not going to recover what he needed out of this. In fact, the average servant sold for about 10% of that. The, the, he, he was going to settle for pennies on the dollar, but this was how, this was the only recourse he had. It says in verse 26, that this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything, which is a stupid thing to say because he couldn't pay it back in 200,000 lifetimes. But the servant's master took pity on him and he canceled the debt and he let him go. Just watching this guy beg and plead for his life, the master's heart broke and he reached out to him in compassion. He said, you know what? Let's forget about it. I'll just write it off as bad debt. Don't even... Don't worry about it. You don't owe me a penny. Billions and billions of dollars of debt forgiven like that. After I read the story, by the way, I contacted that king and he now holds my mortgage. So I feel really, really good about that. Um, 
So I imagine, I mean, this guy walks out of the king's throne room. He must be two feet taller. He's just had the weight of billions of dollars of debt lifted off of his shoulders. But the story doesn't end. In verse 28, it says, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. And he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. This fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. The man walks out of the throne room and he deliberately and intentionally goes out to hunt down a guy who owes him 100 denarii. Now you have to understand, 100 denarii is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the debt that this guy was just forgiven. It's actually one one thousandth of one percent of the debt that this guy just had forgiven. It's, the, it's, a, it's basically the, the wages of a common laborer for a hundred days. It's about three months worth of work. And he comes, he hunts down this guy and he grabs him by the cloak. He throws him up against the wall and he starts to choke him. And he says, where's the money, Lebowski. Right, and this guy's freaking out and he's saying, hey, he said, just come on, give me time. I can, I can pay it all back. In fact, he, he says to this servant exactly the same words that the servant, I thought I was going to knock my chair over. Exactly the same words that the servant had uttered to the king. And you know what? He could have, with a proper financial plan, set up the whole thing. He could have paid the whole thing back probably in about six months or a year. This guy would have none of it. In fact, in verse 30, when it says he refused, literally in the Greek, it says, but that's not what he wanted. And he grabbed the guy and had him thrown in debtor's prison until his family and his friends could come up with the thousands, few thousand dollars that he owed. Verse 31, it says, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. When the master called, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This final scene overturns everything that happened in scene one. In scene one, the king is moved by compassion. In in this final scene, he's moved by anger. In scene one, the king forgives the entirety of the debt. In this scene, he demands repayment. In scene one, the king is prepared to sell the servant off at first, to settle for pennies on the dollar. In this last scene, he now wants every single penny that he's owed in the first scene he's going to sell the man into slavery in the last scene he sends him to debtor's prison just like this servant had done with the guy who owed him 100 denarii except instead of just sending him to debtor's prison he sends him there to be tortured until his family and friends can drum up the billions of dollars that he owes which will happen never And just in case you missed the point, Jesus closes by saying this. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Jesus says, just, I want you to take a step back and think about this scenario. You've been hurt by somebody else. You as a person have been forgiven 
an unthinkable debt by God. Right? We, every moment of every day, we owe God 100% of our love, 100% of our allegiance, faithfulness, and 100% of our obedience. And every single moment of every single day, we give God something less than 100% of our love and devotion. Which means, in the biblical, the Bible often uses the language of debt to talk about sin. We owe God. And we owe God big time. Because we've failed to give him his due over and over and over again. And you know how God has responded to the billions and billions of dollars that we have accrued in spiritual debt towards him? He came in the person of Jesus Christ. And he died on the cross. And he was raised from the dead to extend forgiveness and grace and mercy without limit or boundary or end to everybody who asks. He's forgiven us with this insane generosity and grace. He has forgiven us a spiritual debt beyond anything we could calculate. And then we turn around And when somebody injures us, we have the gall to not extend the same mercy and grace and forgiveness to them. This this story is Jesus asking us the question, who do you think you are? Because we come into an environment like this Sunday after Sunday and we sing songs of worship and we celebrate and we praise God for his magnificent beauty, beautiful mercy and grace that he's poured out on us and the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ and then we walk out the doors in the back and we in pettiness and smallness and bitterness and unforgiveness refuse to forgive the people who have injured us in some small way. And Jesus says, friends, this should never be. This isn't what it means to be church. What it means to be church is to be the kind of community that extends radical hospitality to everyone. The kind of community that extends radical consideration that always puts other people ahead of itself. The kind of community that is radically and passionately committed to pursuing people who have drifted away and to bring them back into community and into relationship with Christ. The community that is radically committed to relational reconciliation and a community that is radically committed to forgiveness mercy and grace that knows no limit or boundary or end because forgiven people are forgiving people. Those who know what it's like to be forgiven by God are the kinds of people out of whom that forgiveness bubbles over into other people's lives. So who is it for you? Who is it that needs to experience the forgiveness that God has poured into your life, flowing through your life into them. Because God has done this remarkable, wonderful thing. And that's actually what we're here to celebrate this morning. Not just in the worship, not just in the preaching, but in hearing the stories and in celebrating the baptism of eight different people across all three of our locations who this morning want to share their story of what God has done in their life, the ways in which God has been beautiful in pouring mercy and grace and even forgiveness on them. 
And so as you hear these stories, I want you to be I want you to be reflecting on two things. I mean, just celebrate with them. But I want you to be reflecting on the ways in which God has been merciful and gracious and forgiving to you. And I want to ask your, I want you to ask yourself, on whom do you now need to pour that mercy and grace and forgiveness? Check out these stories and let's celebrate the goodness of God together.